From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Back in the innocent days of February 2020, I sent a Twitter message to the author Nick Rapatrizone in reply to a tweet he posted about reading the Graham Greene novel The Power and the Glory for Lent, which is something he does every year. I asked him, what if we invited others to read along with us and talk about it online? Nick was up for it, and the Jesuit book club was born, just before everything went virtual. Since then, we've hosted a series of live online events featuring conversations with some of today's best authors who are rooted in the Catholic literary tradition, including Alice McDermott, Kirsten Valdez Quaid, and Phil Cly. For this summer selection, I asked Nick if we could read and talk about his own recent book, which is titled Wild Belief, Poets and Prophets in the Wilderness. I love this book, which traces the theme of wilderness through the work of almost a dozen writers in creative and surprising ways. And this time, instead of a live event, we're bringing it to you today as an episode of AMDG. Whether you read the book along with us this summer or not, I think you'll get something out of it and learn about three of the authors Nick features prominently in the book. We hope you enjoy this conversation and join us this autumn for our next book and live author event. Nick will tell you who you'll get a chance to meet in October at the end of this podcast, but I'll give you a hint. She's an acclaimed memoirist and poet and wrote the 1995 bestseller The Liars Club. Be sure to check out jesuits.org slash book club after listening to this episode to sign up for the upcoming virtual gathering with our mystery guest. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Nick Rapatrizone, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today about your newest book, Wild Belief, Poets and Prophets in the Wilderness. This is officially a session of the Jesuit Book Club, which you facilitate for us. We've been having a series of, of great book events with authors for the past year or so. And um, yeah, now you're on the hot seat. You're the special guest. So <laughs> uh, from facilitator to facilitated, I guess. So <laughs> welcome and thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't know if you saw like an uptick in your book sales through the Jesuit book. Club. Um, <laughs> hopefully some people found it. Um, so you can, uh, you can join us in our book club readings in our Facebook group. If you just search for Jesuit book club and we put out information uh, through our, um, you know, all of our social media on our events. Um, and we usually do live events, but we thought for the summer people are around. So we'll do it in this podcast form. So if you're a book club person coming to AMDG for the first time, Welcome. If you're an AMDG listener who hasn't seen the book club, uh, be sure to, to tune in uh, for information about that. At the end of the episode, we will announce who our next guest author is, which is very exciting. But um, yeah, so we over the summer, we're reading this book, uh, Wild Belief. And uh, Nick, you shared some discussion questions that we posted in the, the Facebook group. And uh, I had a chance to read it and spent a lot of time outside this summer. So it was a good place to, to dig into the book. So um, Maybe if you just uh, could, could start off by introducing yourself to, to folks who, who might not have uh, heard you or, or read you before. Sure. Um, I'm a culture editor for Image Journal and uh, a contributing editor for the Catholic Herald. And of course, as you said, the, the facilitator of the Jesuit Book Club, which has been um, really enjoyable over the past year and a half now. Uh, we read the books of some of the best contemporary Catholic writers. We've had um, 
Alice McDermott, uh, Phil Cly, Kirsten Valdez Quaid, uh, and others join us for live events. And the conversations have been great. So it's been a, a real success to be a part of that club. Yeah. So no, it's great. And again, as I said, we, we turned it over to you for our summer reading selection, which I thought was such a, a great thing to read during uh, the summer months. So um, tell us a little bit about Wild Belief. Like what, what went into that? Um, where did you come up with the idea? What made you want to, to write this book in particular? Sure. Yeah, Wild, Wild Belief is the story of how the wilderness has really been a source of inspiration for storytellers from uh, the ancient times until the present. And, and in particular, how those storytellers have been drawn to the more spiritual elements of the wild. And the poets, writers, and prophets ha have found the wilderness to really be a, a fearful and a sacred space, which, which is a tension that I think gets to the heart of the paradox of belief itself and faith itself. For me, the reason why I, I wrote this book is I live in the northwestern part of New Jersey, which is a part of the state that's really teeming with, with forests and lakes and mountains and not to mention coyotes and bears and foxes and bobcats. And my family is originally from urban and suburban spaces. So um, I've really come to see this more natural landscape to almost be a spiritual revelation of sorts. I spent a lot of time out in the woods uh, with my wife and, and my young daughters, and I was inspired to contemplate about those places um, even further as I was writing this book. So you, you're out, you're spending time in the woods, you're running through the woods, you're seeing bears on your trail camera. Um, <laughs> so like, do you have that experience and then you start realizing, oh, actually a lot of writers have done this um, or what you like searching it out. Were you just kind of noticing that you had such so many people kind of uh, writing in this vein? Like what was the, that process like? like chicken or the egg question, I guess. I think it's part of when you're out in the wild. Um, sometimes it just kind of clicks that there's the world is, is bigger than you, stranger than you, more complex than you. There's an awe, you know, which, of course, is, is in the religious literary tradition is something that has been there for a long time. And when I started to have, I guess, uh, more focused emotions or feelings about that, I realized a lot of the writers that I loved over the years had at some point engaged with the wilderness as a theme or a subject. And experiencing it myself sort of helped me understand them better. And it seemed like the right time for me to investigate why this existed sort of for me as a reader, and as a person. So Catholicism often is seen as like this kind of urban religion, right? Like this, mm -hmm. you know, as you were mentioning, that's kind of where your family is from. A lot of, especially Jesuit schools in, in great cities, think of churches kind of at the hearts of neighborhoods. You can imagine, you know, uh, even U.S. cities where you would have a Polish church on one block of the city, Italian church on the other. And, and while we have a tradition like uh, the desert fathers or you know different monasteries out kind of in more rural wild spaces so much of the our tradition is urban did you feel that tension at all were you surprised to see how many catholic writers thinkers prophets had engaged with wilderness like what was that experience for you like as someone as a catholic of like urban suburban background mm -hmm. yeah it's a great point i agree with you that in especially here in new jersey um when we think of so, you know, prep St. Peter's, you know, some of the high schools, places associated with those those locations. Um, it, it has become kind of that almost identifying trait of Catholicism as um, 
like an on the street religion. You know, it's something that is with the people in masses. Uh, and and I, I was pleasantly surprised to see how strong uh, the Catholic tradition was outdoors. Um, and, and it's it, it, Thomas Merton is, is certainly a big element of that in terms of pop culture. But for me, looking at how uh, Catholic and, and, and Christian writers saw the wilderness as a place to extend the walls or kind of go beyond the walls of the church. And I, I liked that tension because I'm someone who, who certainly does feel my own faith um, kind of spike when I'm in the, the church walls, like it, it, the architectural acoustic, everything about it really does the job that it was meant to do. Um, so it was, it was certainly a, both a challenge, but also kind of a welcome investigation to see how other writers have extended that experience of church into the, the course of the canopy of the woods or the sort of the desert itself. Yeah. And maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. You do spend some time at the beginning of the book and then throughout really talking about what it is when we say wilderness, like both kind of practically, what, what does that mean? How has it been represented? And then also like, what are some of the symbols and some of the tensions that are there as both a place of temptation and great faith and sacredness. Um, so just even you spent a lot of time with that word and the idea of wilderness. Like what are some of the things you found uh, about it in your research? So the wilderness um, for many writers is a place of chaos and uh, discord, overgrowth, uh, maybe even just like a feeling of being overwhelmed by the, the, earth and the climate itself. Um, it's a place that we cannot control, um, even though we might try to. And early in the book, I talk a little bit about how the wilderness has been defined in many different ways. And, and really, the definition of wilderness is a contextual one. Um, and in America, many times we see the wilderness as a thing to be tamed. Um, we chop down forests, we pull weeds from the parking lot, growing through the asphalt. Like we want to just erase the wilderness. Whereas for other writers um, in, other, in other kind of cultures, but in other faith traditions, perhaps, the wilderness is a place that God is found uh, most directly. Um, it is natural. It is uh, beyond us. So when I say wilderness in the book, I mean forests. I mean deserts. I mean places that um, sometimes are not hospitable, places that we can't exist as people. And for that reason, it becomes such a, I think, a rich metaphor and subject for so many writers. And of course, ultimately, there is emotional components to this. You know, when we talk about a spiritual wilderness, we talk about being tested. And perhaps there are times in one's life where we feel like we cannot win that battle. So there's such a rich metaphor to it that I think there's so many writers who have been drawn to that, that world. I love that you ground your discussion, which again, hits on a lot of more contemporary 19th or 19th, 20th, 21st century writers by going back to some scriptural roots and looking really at uh, maybe the the example par excellence of a wilderness figure, at least in the New Testament, John the Baptist, uh, mm -hmm. kind of emerging from that world than his encounter with Jesus. And then Jesus's own move into the wilderness uh, for that beginning kind of period of, uh, of preparation, examination, temptation. Uh, so you're, I'm sure again, John the Baptist, we all know who John the Baptist is, but you got a chance to spend some time 
uh, digging into his story and, and what scholars have, have written about him and his kind of wilderness context. What are some of the, the things that were most interesting to you to learn about uh, the tradition of, of John the Baptist? It showed me that, that the wilderness is central and not incidental to scripture. It's not this kind of side setting, um, this novelty. It's, it's an absolutely central uh, location to the narrative, you know, so to speak, of, of the Bible. Um, and I think much of the, the literary and the thematic grandeur of biblical story and what storytelling, what makes it so powerful is the juxtaposition of people against these wild spaces. Um, certainly there are scenes in the Bible of, of, of more city-like spaces, places, you know, where, that are domestic or are um, inhabited. But I think many of the greatest moments of that storytelling occur uh, in the desert, in places that are uh, rough, that are perhaps barren, that are uh, places that, that test us. And, and John the Baptist, as you say, is someone I think who can be treated perhaps as a secondary character or a person who is more like a facilitator than, than an actual central element. Um, but I think the more that I really reflected on him and read about him, um, he's a complex Jewish prophet who is inextricable for the wilderness. So it's not simply that that was his origin story. Um, that is his personality. And the, the way in which in the economy of biblical storytelling, the amount of time that's given to his physical appearance, to what he eats, to this idea of him being wedded to that wild suggests to me, and, and I think suggests to so many other readers and scholars of this, that we are meant to really put a lot of importance on that wilderness um, habitation and origin for him. And as you say, when, when Christ goes into the wilderness himself, these are absolutely pivotal storytelling moments in the Bible. Um, and, and we have much of the, the symbolic, I guess, foundation of our faith being built on wild moments. Yeah, and he, that kind of makes, at least John the Baptist, almost like inaccessible or kind of difficult to understand. What, what do you think makes it so important that that's kind of where he's he's coming from? Like that obviously is choices that are made by the writer or by the Lord or all of the above. <laughs> like we see, yeah. um, what 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 about it? Like what roles? Like you can say a little bit more about the specific roles in the story that that wilderness plays. So I think John the Baptist is um, a way to capture the otherness or the radical otherness of uh, the wild, that this is a, um, this is a new ministry. This is a new faith. This is something that is outside the status quo that is uh, in some ways almost dangerous. And the fact that John the Baptist arrives in the narrative as this unusual character, as this person who looks different, who eats different things, um, who is, uh, unusual. Uh, I think it, it, it serves, I guess, a typological precedent, but also this, this foreshadowing of sorts that um, the person who is about to follow, of course, is greater than him, um, but comes from that, that similar almost stock. It's something that is beyond the, the human comfort. And I think a lot of times, you know, one thing that I was coming back to a lot in writing this book is that for me, um, Catholicism 
at its core really is, is there's a radicalness to it. There's a, there's a, a uniqueness. There's, um, there's something that really can't be contained in the church walls. And, you know, we use ritual to try to kind of tap into that almost like supernatural spirituality. Um, the wilderness kind of gives it to us right away. And that's something that a lot of readers and writers have experienced, of course, with the wild. But John the Baptist, I think, gives us kind of that prototypical person to look at as someone who encapsulates that uniqueness of the wild. Yeah, I think there always is such a uh, like a temptation to domesticate Jesus or domesticate God and to fit them into our little boxes. I think of the the quote that's sometimes attributed to Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if she said it, but uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Uh, <laughs> some, and you see that in her writing, certainly the strangeness that can come with uh, faith and mystical experiences. Um, right. So I, I want to turn to some of the authors who you spent, spent time with in the book, but maybe first uh, you have, you know, a lot of people mention maybe how many do you focus on with full chapters? You have uh, um, kind of like six different chapters and then one or two mm-hmm. writers and a lot of those that get a big focus, but then others like Thomas Merton comes up a lot throughout a right. lot of the different chapters, but doesn't have his own. Um, mm-hmm. So did you have like a process of kind of narrowing down who you wanted to focus on? It was a real challenge to, to be selective. And I think, you know, the subject of this book could have easily become like an encyclopedia. There are so many writers, worthy writers um, of many different faiths and traditions who have been inspired by the wilderness. Um, it was definitely difficult to, to winnow it down to the list that exists in the book. And I, I tried to include figures who are primarily known to us through religious lens, like John the Baptist, Jesus, St. Anthony. Um, but I also at the same time wanted to include people who have a faith element, but are known to us primarily as, as writers, people like um, Jim Harrison, Terry Tempest Williams, uh, the poet W.S. Merwin. What I think unites all these writers is they see wilderness as generative for their storytelling. And that it's the mystery of faith and doubt that kind of contributes to that literary energy. Um, So the writers in the book, um, some of them are Catholic, some of them are, Christian, some of them, you know, W.S. Merwin himself is Buddhist, like there's a mixture of those faith traditions. But of course, I'm coming to this as, as, a, as a Catholic myself. So I think Catholicism is ultimately centered there as the anchor for bringing these people together. So what I asked you to do uh, in preparation for this was to to kind of get to prepare for th- discussion a little bit deeper on three of the writers we have in the book. I picked those writers, so that was out of your control. Uh, but figure <laughs> since they had made it to your book, you were fans. Uh, you're sure. a fan of them. So um, we're gonna do we're gonna dive into first Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a Jesuit. This is a Jesuit podcast. That one was easy slam dunk. Um, then we will look at a really interesting guy I had never encountered until this book named William Everson. And then we'll talk about Mary Oliver, who's an extremely popular poet who just passed away a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So for each one, I asked you to kind of pick up a, a poem of theirs, you'll share it, and then talk a little bit about why that reveals something about that writer and kind of what you learned about them through your, your process of writing this book. So let's kick it off with Hopkins, which chronologically works. And also again, as the Jesuit podcast makes sense for us to do. So Gerard Manley Hopkins, English Jesuit, kind of beloved, but also another strange kind of person <laughs> who's can be kind of difficult to get into sometimes is not always the most easily accessible, but I did find reading yeah. your book on him and then going to his poetry that you include and, Oh, okay. Like I'm, 
a more comfortable, you kind of orient the reader, I think, really nicely into how do we encounter someone like Hopkins who can seem on the surface as, as really difficult. So yeah, tell us a little bit about him uh, and then uh, you can jump right into whatever poem of his you picked. Yeah, Hopkins was a 19th century, as you say, British Jesuit priest uh, who converted to Catholicism um, at a time when he and, and many other people associated with Oxford uh, were becoming Catholics. It was sort of a, a countercultural thing. And um, uh, Cardinal Henry Newman was, was someone who uh, certainly influenced him. And he had correspondence with Newman uh, about his entrance into the Catholic Church and ultimately his, his entrance into the, the Jesuit order. Uh, Hopkins was a, a gifted poet, um, not a great priest in the sense that he wasn't like a, a great preacher. He wasn't uh, an inspiring speaker. He was a quiet guy who was really overworked as a, as a professor, uh, but he was an absolutely brilliant uh, poet. He saw the world in, in a very unique way. And that he, that way was um, ultimately uh, arising from his, his deep faith. So uh, when you, when you say that Hopkins was strange, you know, he absolutely was. And I, and I mean that kind of in the best possible way, I think that a lot of great Catholic art arises from that strangeness, that, that looking at the world in a little bit different way than other people. Um, as you also mentioned, Hopkins uh, sometimes is challenging. It depends on the poems one reads of him. If you read, um, like I did, the first time I was introduced to Hopkins was The Windhover, <clears throat> which is a very, very challenging poem. The one that I'm going to read uh, in a moment, Spring and Fall, is a little more direct in its style. But what Hopkins did was he almost made a new language for himself as he was describing the world. He believed in this kind of unusual poetic theory called inscape. And he thought that everything that you look at in the world from a person to a tree has this kind of um, almost soulful core that you when you look at the tree, the tree almost notices you looking at it. It's almost like a, a very heightened level of appreciation for the wild world. And that's really what charged much of his writing. Um, the poem that I'm going to read is um, a, a, certainly a sad poem from Hopkins, who, who definitely had a melancholy kind of tinge to his work. But um, this one is called Spring and Fall, and it's invoked, it says, to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man, you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh the worlds of wanwood leaf me lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no, nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. So it's a really, really sad poem, of course, about, you know, how do you explain to a child um, that the things that cause them pain and sadness um, will be eclipsed by things that are perhaps more 
grand and, and, and deeper. And, you know, I, I, this is a poem that like I really liked before I became a parent, but since I've become a parent, it's like shot up to the top of the list in terms of it, it works. It, it makes sense, but it's interesting, even with that sort of universal theme, he uses nature as the thing that brings down the abstraction to the physical, right? The, the leaves, you know, seeing that on the ground. And that's really one thing that poetry can do for us, um, maybe spiritually, is let bring us to those heights of abstraction and spirit, but give us the tangible physicality to make it something that we can understand. And I think that's one of the great things about Hopkins as a writer. It's funny you mentioned kind of liking this more as a parent. I also knew it before I was a parent. My brother, who's a composer of music, set it to music, actually, uh, when he was nice. in college. Yeah, it's a really cool version of it. And so that's how I got to know it. I was like, oh, would a kid really be upset about leaves falling? But now our six-year-old, our six-year-old <laughs> likes to make, you know, likes to rank things and make lists and fall is her least favorite season, despite it being my favorite, because she does not like that all the leaves have fallen off the trees. <laughs> so like you can see, I was like, oh, all right. Well, I can see uh, whoever, Margaret, that Hopkins was talking to here, uh, maybe a... Uh, kind of similar in spirit and also our six-year-old is starting to like understand what death is or at least if not like in directly in her life that there are you know people and things die and yeah. so that that connection there and just a handful of lines um though i will say like if hopkins were like an uncle coming over to hang out and starts going to these places with the six-year-old it's like wait a minute let's just pull that back a little. um but yeah it is like this kind of uh yeah this kind of gutting Going thing with yeah so um great so that that's a a good intro uh to hopkins of course also has some of those images in, in his work that have been you know are famous we actually uh you contributed to an ebook we just published uh called christ plays in Ten Thousand places which comes from a hopkins poem as well and is so aware of the divine all around him in the second of sacramental uh imagination see god's grace communicated through through so many things yeah. and that is one thing I, I did see like in a lot of the authors that came up in, in the book those we'll talk about and, and others is that like how close how attentive they were to just the things around them and the engaging in the wilderness it's just like you have to be a really good looker which means kind mm -hmm. of slowing yourself down just paying really close attention to like to the thing in front of you, to the tree, to the person, to the animal, to the water running, whatever it is, like to just really take time and look, which is something that I think takes skill and practice, mm -hmm. especially now where it's, if I'm by myself in a quiet outdoor place, like my phone is coming out usually within a few seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just a reminder to just like, to literally just look. Um, so mm -hmm. Gerard Manley Hopkins, obviously a great looker. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, all right. So let's, let's turn to the, the next uh, poet. Now we've picked uh, William Everson again, someone I'd never heard of what a wild life story he had. So maybe just introduce our listeners who might not be familiar with him a little bit about who this, this guy was and his, his journey. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's one of the great California poets. And I mean that in the sense that he is uh, distinctly Californian. I don't think it's, you know, Dan Joya has said of him that it's impossible to imagine um, William Everson coming from anywhere other than than California. He he was shaped by uh, the natural landscape of that area, um, and there's a grandness to his poetry because of it. Uh, when he was growing up, um, he he was very involved in, in his family was involved in farming, and he um, later owned a farm himself. 
he was drawn to almost a pagan appreciation for nature, um, nature as a deity itself. And he loved the poetry of this other California writer, uh, Robinson Jeffers, who, who wrote these really weird um, California narratives, these verses. And it seemed like that was the way Everson was going as a writer. Like he was going to be just another kind of, you know, uh, roughly pagan or, or, or um, sort of nature as God poet. And then he met this artist named Mary Fabili. Um, she was a devoted Catholic and her faith absolutely fascinated Everson. Um, it was, he would, he would talk about how she would play um, the music, like uh, chants. And, and he felt almost like monastic when he was with her and uh, he converted, he, he wrote about his conversion. I talk about a little bit in the book is this kind of this um, dramatic uh Christmas Eve kind of revelation that he had. Um, and, and, you know, sadly, ultimately their marriage ended um, because of that, um, because he actually felt called uh, to the religious life. He became a Dominican lay brother and he became famous. He was Time Magazine, did a story on him. He was known as the Beat Friar because he sounded like a beat poet, but he's up there with his habit, you know, kind of uh, giving these wonderful performances. And he traveled all over the country. He was one of the most famous poets of uh, the late 50s, 1960s. So this is a guy who was at the top of his game in the literary world who's a Dominican lay brother. And then I don't want to say all of a sudden, because, you know, I learned in speaking to people who knew him that this was kind of brewing, but um, at a reading in 1969, he read this provocative poem and then he took off his monk's habit and he's like, that's it. I'm out. And he left and he got married and he actually stayed a Catholic um, his whole life. And was, I would say, one of the most profoundly religious poets uh, of American mid-century literature. And I think one of the interesting and revealing things about Everson is that a lot of his friends from California are secularists. They're people who are not religious or not Catholic. And the way that they describe Everson is first and foremost as a Catholic poet. So it's not just like somebody like me, who's kind of like a cheerleader for Catholic literature saying, like, look at this Catholic guy. You've got the people who aren't Catholic saying this guy was a Catholic. And I think he's a, he's a really important poet. There's um, one poem that I'd like to, to read from him. This was written uh, during his, his time as a, as a, a Dominican. And uh, the title of this is Out of the Ash. Solstice of the dark, the absolute zero of the year. Praise God who comes for us again. Our lives pulled to their fisted knot, cinched tight with cold, drawn to the heart's constriction. Our faces seemed like clinkers in the grate, hands like tongs. 
praise God that Christ, Phoenix immortal, springs up again from solstice ash, drives his equatorial ray into our cloud, emblazons our stiff brow, fries our chill tears. Come, Christ, most gentle and thought throat pulsing bird. Oh, come, sweet child, be gladness in our church. Waken with anthems, our bare rafters. O Phoenix forever, virgin wombed and burning in the dark, be born, be born. So the way this poem kind of sits on the page is kind of like a column. And you can almost imagine this Dominican brother up there on the stage, like chanting this stuff. And remember, his audience is not Catholics. It's people who are, people who are into poetry. And he wowed them. And the whole time he's talking about Christ. Pretty amazing as a performance. What, what are some of the um, kind of wilderness images we, we have in this poem? I heard, uh, you know, you have solstice, obviously, kind of the mm-hmm. sense of the, the planet within the solar system. Um, the idea of ash is like very physical and like, you know, the burning of palms in a church setting or just burning yeah. of kind of anything organic. So yeah. What are some of the other uh, things you're seeing there in that, in that connection? Well, you see some of the vestiges of his more kind of pagan view of the world in his appropriation of that Phoenix concept, but turning it so that it takes on a Christian hue. So this idea that, uh, of in, in Christ's resurrection, he's kind of coming out of the ground. He's kind of with those fire and those embers, um, he's rising again. And I think for for us, when we when we imagine um, Everson as sort of uh, someone who's coming from a land that California is a place that is uh, fiercely independent, it is fiercely, uh, you know, we think of like the urban California, but California is really a wilderness state. And, and Everson is someone who um, himself was resurrected. He was a, a, someone who did not believe and found in his belief an explanation for the world. So a lot of times um, when Everson, when he even describes his conversion, he uses forest imagery and he talks about how he kind of has emerged from that forest as a new man and, and in some ways kind of puts himself as a type of Christ in that way. Yeah, interesting for sure. And what a what a story. I'm excited to dive more into uh to his stuff. Um so let let's turn now to to Mary Oliver, someone who in the book you say really is kind of unfairly sometimes, you know, pigeonholed to oh as this like kind of popular poet who's not serious, capital S serious. And you're like, no, that's wrong. Um <laughs> she's uh that is uh, unfair and a misreading of of her. So um yeah. So for those who might not, people, maybe they don't necessarily know the name, but have probably heard her, her stuff. If you're interested in, in poetry at all, just as she's, you can find her everywhere. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about her and, uh, and yeah, do the same thing. Pick a, pick one of hers to, to dig into a bit. Yeah. Mary Oliver um, is, was one of the most prolific uh, poets of her time and also a great essayist uh, as well. And she would write about how when she was young, um, she'd be walking in a stream and she'd be walking upstream and she would feel she'd go in there barefoot. She felt the water kind of pushing against her. And, and Mary Oliver's wilderness 
is not a grand wilderness scape. Like if we think of Terry Tempest Williams out on Great Salt Lake in Utah, or um, Jim Harrison or Thomas McGuain kind of out hunting in the wilderness. Mary Oliver's wilderness is that little pocket of woods in the corner of a neighborhood or a little park and something like that. And I think that's part of what's made her so powerful for readers. Um, if someone that you know who is suspicious maybe of poetry or not really interested in it, Mary Oliver is the right kind of person to give to them. And I think because of that, as you say, she's been um, unfairly maligned by critics or poets as being um, light or superficial in her verse. Um, I mean, it's important to know that poetry is a a world of envy, like the literary world is a place where a lot of people are mad at other people for things. Um, Mary Oliver was an incredibly talented writer and she she was a very complex writer, I think. And um, she she wants she wanted her her readers to pay attention to the world and to do so in, in a slow, consistent manner. And you know, when when we I sometimes think about this like if I look out the woods um, behind our house here, um, a lot of times we look at nature, we look at it very briefly, like 10 seconds brief. But if you stare for a minute or two, something starts to happen. And we know this, I think, through prayer and in other parts of our life, but it really is an exercise that Oliver, I think, um, mastered. So one, one poem from hers that I'd like to read is uh, Blackberries, which is a great piece to capture, I think, this, this sense of attention that she has. Blackberries. I come down, come down the blacktop road from Red Rock. A hot day. Off the road and the hacked tangles. Blackberries big as thumbs hang shining in the shade. And a creek nearby a dark spit through wet stones and a pool like a stone sink. If you know where to climb for it among the hillside ferns where the thrush naps in her nest of sticks and loam. I come down from red rock lips streaked black fingers, purple throat, cool shirt full of fern fingers head full of windy whistling it takes all day so what i love about i mean there's very many famous blackberry poems seamus haney's probably blackberry picking at the top of the list um, but what i love about her method is that the first stanza of the poem i come down that's his own sentence Come down from the blacktop road from Red Rock. That's its own sentence. A hot day. That's its own sentence. We live our days usually in prose, right? Sentences, paragraphs. Oliver stops you and with poetry. She kind of forces you to slow down syntactically, emotionally, which is really what prayer does, right? Prayer and, and mass um, is language regimented in a different way. Once she has us, then she throws the details at us. The hacked tangles, blackberries big as thumbs, and in the shining in the shade, she keeps on layering that. 
almost as if when you really open your eyes to the world, the incredible complexity of the wild, and then she weds herself to that wild, she's kind of marked by it after eating and, and picking the blackberries, and then she emerges from that a changed person. That encapsulates a lot of what Oliver thinks the wild can do for us. And I would definitely suggest that people who haven't encountered her, you know, if you want to see a poet who can really lead you to, you know, to prayer, I think Oliver's at the top of the list. Yeah. I'm also interested in, in how it ends. It takes all day. I get another kind of short sentence bracketing. It's a short poem. You can imagine this. Oh, okay. I can see this going. She's like a, it's like a 10 minute walk. Like, no, no, this takes all day to do to do right. this. Um, and yeah, she reminds me of, uh, I think I emailed this to you as we were preparing for this, uh, Walter Burkhart mm-hmm. Jesuit who mm-hmm. defined contemplation as a long loving look at the real, the real kind of being those things right in front of us, not abstract, uh, but real things paying close attention with love and to devote that and not to like change them, not to manipulate them, not to like even to offer comment on them, mm-hmm. but just really to, to look and to hold them uh, in love. And that is there where we find contemplation and how we get to know God better. Um, So yeah, I see her as a a great practitioner of long loving looks at the real. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. Well, yeah, I thank you so much for bringing us into those three. Some of my other favorites in the book, uh, Wendell Berry is a favorite of mine who we didn't get to talk about. Um, And as I said, Thomas Merton is traces throughout uh, the whole thing you mentioned W.S. Mer- Merwin, Jim Harrison, Thomas McGuane, Terry Tempest Williams. Anyway, I just love how you bring all those voices together and kind of show, how, you know, how they have some things in common, but then also kind of approach the wilderness in their their own ways. So uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't been reading along with us this summer. So wild belief from Nick. Um, so thank you so much again for coming to talk about it. Before we let people go, we do have to announce our um, our next Jesuit book club event which is coming up this fall. We're going to have another live event on October 25th, which is what day of the week is the 25th of October. That is a Monday afternoon at 4:30 Eastern, 1:30 Pacific. We'll, we'll, um, we'll meet online and uh, we're going to have a, a pretty prominent poet, essayist, memoirist with us. So Nick, tell us who we're going to be hanging out with. Yeah. I'm really excited to, to read and talk with uh, Mary Carr who is a fantastic writer and, and I think one of our best um, contemporary Catholic writers uh, will be reading her, her most recent book of poems, uh, Tropic of Squalor. Uh, it's a great book. And, uh, you know, her poetry suggests that Catholics really live often in extremes of devotion or doubt and that we're kind of swelled with, with something that almost feels like poetic fervor or we're sunk down to melancholy. She brings you as a reader, um, all those extremes in the book. And I think she's one of the essential Catholic writers out there. And um, it'll be a great uh, reading experience in the, in the book club in our um, the weeks leading up to it. And I think it'll be a fantastic event with her live. Yeah. So we will um, in the show notes for this episode, put the information where you can sign up to join us for that live event on the 25th. It's free of charge. We'll also link to our Facebook group where you can, um, can join in the, the conversation. Uh, so be sure to, to check that out so you can uh, read along with us and, and then hang out with, with us and Mary Carr on October 25th. So 
uh, looking forward to that. Thanks again, Nick, for coming on. Thanks for uh, all the great work with the, the Jesuit Book Club. It's turned into a really cool thing we've been able to offer, really starting at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, which was not the plan we had planned for right before the pandemic kind of descended, but it's been a nice kind of virtual space for talking about literature and spirituality. Um, and it's been, yeah, been a lot of fun. So but thanks again for this. And again, um, Wild Belief, Poets and Prophets in the Wilderness. Do you have any other... Uh, I know you're always writing books. So anything else uh, coming out soon people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, in March of 2022, I have a book, uh, Digital Communion, which is uh, sort of the, the largely untold story of Marshall McLuhan, the prophet of the electronic age, his, his deep and ardent Catholicism, and how that was the foundation of many of his media theories. Um, so I'm looking forward to that coming out next year. Nice. Now he taught at St. Louis University, so another Jesuit yeah. fan. Yeah. I just really the hits don't stop with you. <laughs> yeah, nice. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, th thanks again, Nick. I look forward to that. And uh, yeah, I know you're going back to to teaching for another school year of high school English coming up soon. So yeah. good luck uh, for that. Thank as you. Kind of going back into a more regular year, I guess, but also uh, still one with uh, some concerns and, and challenges yeah. ahead. So prayers for you on that. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>